Welcome to Crawl Space. I'm Tim here today with Lance. Lance, how are you today? Oh, I'm doing fantastic today, Tim. I hope everyone out there is doing just as fantastic as I am. And I hope that that fantastic feeling has been contagious. I hope that you feel fantastic as well. I do. Thanks a lot for asking. And you know what, Lance? I'm really excited to share this episode with our audience again. It's been over five years since we first released this episode. It is about the murder of William Dean from Jaffrey, New Hampshire in August of 1918. This is episode one. This originally aired in May of 2017, and we did record and release five parts. So you got to scroll back to early in the feed back in 2017, but you can find all of those, and it's very interesting to listen to. Well, like you said, Tim, it's been five years since we aired the first episode. It's been 105 years since the murder took place. And we plan on having some follow-up episodes to this. There have been some developments internally that are giving us an opportunity to perhaps record on the property where Dr. Dean was found. And we are very excited to take this episode and present it to a base of listeners that have perhaps not heard about this story. And then you can scroll back in the aforementioned feed, check out the other episodes. And we're looking forward to giving you some new stuff on this, hopefully soon. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Welcome to Crawl Space. Yes, welcome indeed. That is the voice of actor Ed Hoopman. You're going to hear more from him later. And the music is from David Williams, who did some of the music in Missing Mora Mari as well. What is up, Lance? been looking forward to this a lot this is the case that i think uh, you and i probably will have the most freedom digging as deep and getting into some some pretty tight spaces with uh as far as uh the crawl space series is concerned this is a real interesting one uh for us a murder having taken place in 1918 and what you're about to hear tonight is the opening statement from New Hampshire Attorney General Oscar Young. Right. This is from the grand jury hearing as transcribed by Margaret Bean of Jaffrey, New Hampshire. It is from the Pittman shorthand notes written by the court stenographer at the time, Lena Marsh. Now, the story as to how Margaret Bean obtained these notes and transcribed it will be 
presented in a future episode, which is extremely interesting. But what we have here is about as close to the actual events legally documented as possible. Now, you're saying Bean with a B and not Dean, right? That is correct. The Bean family, the Bean, B-E-A-N, not to be confused with Dean, who uh, William K. Dean is the victim in this case. The Bean family was and still is a very prominent family in the town of Jaffrey. So what you are about to hear is the actual testimony at the grand jury hearing, which took place April 11th through the 22nd of 1919 at the courthouse in Keene, New Hampshire, you're about to hear Oscar Young. He was the attorney general of New Hampshire at the time, laying out the particulars of the Dean murder. A lot of the details are explained here, but not quite all of them. Right. You'll hear names and you'll hear instances and moments, which we will address in later episodes, either by way of these testimonies or by the experts who are still researching the case in Jaffrey, New Hampshire, the Dean Murder Research Group. Now, Oscar Young's testimony, his his introduction at the grand jury, we are going to divide up into two parts during this episode. We're going to cut in about halfway through because the information is very dense. It comes with a language of the time back in 1918, 1919, that turn-of-the-century language. Yeah, Oscar Young's descriptions of some of the common things back in that day really helped set the scene and it kind of makes you feel like you're in that time but also reminds you of how far away this world kind of is from today right it reads like a dickens novel or something of the sort the words that he uses um we will be cutting in about halfway through just to make some some observations on it um, and to really give the listeners a breather because there's a lot of information that's delivered at a at a at a pretty pretty regular clip undoubtedly undoubtedly okay so here is the first half of New Hampshire Attorney General Oscar Young's opening statement at the grand jury hearing at the Dean case back in 1919 Friday April 11th. Mr. Foreman and the gentlemen of the grand jury, I will briefly state to you some of the circumstances concerning the death of the late William K. Dean. The purpose of this investigation is if we can deduce such facts as will satisfy you gentlemen that the matter ought to be inquired of further by a petty jury with respect to any particular person. Now, William K. Dean, a physician by profession, but who never practiced, as I understand it, was a rather peculiar person. He was born in New York State in 1855, and in 1880, he was married to the woman with whom he lived until the time of his death. Shortly after his marriage, he removed to the town of Jaffrey, and about a mile and a half or two miles from East Jaffrey, he bought a tract of land, an old farm, remodeled the farm buildings, and at a short distance above the farm buildings, constructed quite a large summer house and lived there probably alone with his wife until the time of his death. At that time, he was sixty-three and a half years of age, a man rather small of stature and a man of scholarly attainments who liked books but had some peculiar habits and characteristics. For instance, he had a habit of milking at midnight and at noon, 
He sat up very late at night, of course, and as a consequence remained in bed quite late in the forenoon. Now the 13th day of August, as I remember, it was a Tuesday, late in the afternoon, and you will bear in mind, gentlemen, when we speak of the time of day, that sun time was an hour earlier than the time that will be mentioned. As I was saying, late in the afternoon of Tuesday the 13th of August, Mr. Dean drove down to the village of East Jaffrey with the horse attached to a little road cart, one of those kind where one end of the seat tips up. You get in, tip up the seat, walk through the opening, and sit down, all fenced in. You have seen that kind of wagon, undoubtedly. He made some purchases at the various stores, and when he had finished his shopping, he went to call at the house of Mr. Rich, the cashier of the Monadnock Bank at East Jaffrey. A man of some prominence in that community, and a man with who and with whose family Mr. Dean and his wife had been, and were at the time, quite friendly. As Mrs. Dean became physically handicapped, Mr. Dean continued to exchange visits, going to Rich's alone. There may be some dispute as to the hour at which Mr. Dean left Mr. Rich's house that night. Fixing the time is a matter that presents no small difficulty. People witnessing an occurrence will oftentimes have different ideas as to what hour of the day this occurrence took place. So we have no theory as to the exact time Mr. Dean left Mr. Rich's house, but it is assumed that he drove up the road in his road cart on his way home and several people saw him, and one or more heard a team go by at about that time and assume it was Mr. Dean's carriage. And finally, Mr. Dean arrived at his home. Uh, the road is a somewhat secluded road. The house where Mr. Dean lived is perhaps a couple of hundred yards in from the main road, the road that leads from East Jaffrey to Peterborough. And at the south of that road, some 200 yards further, I think it would be, is this large summer house, and in about 150 feet of the summer house was the stable where he kept his horse. Now go back just a moment to Mrs. Dean. Mrs. Dean at that time was 68 years of age. She was an exceedingly well-educated lady, a lady of refinement, and a lady who, in her younger days, was a very attractive woman indeed. But of late years her mind had faded somewhat, and she was suffering from that malady from which we will all suffer if we live long enough, senile dementia. Her mind was not clear. If it were not for that fact, we could probably fix definitely the hour at which Mr. Dean arrived at his home. Mrs. Dean's story, as we gather it from her, was that he arrived at the house somewhere around half past nine, that he brought in some things he had brought down to the village, some things the riches had given him on his call there, left them at the house, drove his horse to the barn, put up his horse, and came back to the house got a little something to eat, and at 11 o'clock left the house and went up to the barn to milk the cow, telling her he would return in an hour, or as she puts it, saying he would return at 12 o'clock. That, gentlemen, was the last time Mrs. Dean ever saw her husband alive, or ever saw her husband, so far as the authorities know. Her story is that she waited for him in the darkness there at the home, wondering why he didn't come back and at five o'clock she went out to look for him. She found the lantern in the stable overturned and out. Not finding him and having no knowledge as to where he had gone or why he didn't return, she called up people down to the village. 
The story became current downtown that Mr. Dean had disappeared, and as a result, some of his friends, Mr. Rich among others, called up to find out about it, and she immediately announced to them that Billy, that is her husband, was dead. When she came to be interviewed by the authorities, she still stuck to that assertion. When I interviewed her, she insisted to me that Billy was dead, and when I asked her why she thought he was dead, she, in a rather incoherent way, went on to state that his head hurt and that he undoubtedly fell over in the deep water. And when we inquired where the deep water was, she would point down across the valley where there was no water other than a swamp, and when I asked her if she could take us to the deep water, she said she couldn't, unless we were able to walk on top of the trees. I speak of that merely to show you gentlemen, in a way, the condition of this woman's mind. As a result of the report that Mr. Dean had disappeared, of course, an investigation was immediately begun. When they arrived there, down at the barn, they found blood stains on the doorstep. Or it wasn't a doorstep, but there was a, a little portico built out where this door was that went into the stable, a little portico built out about four to six feet with a pitched roof to shed the water that came off the eaves of the roof so it wouldn't run down a man's neck when he wanted to go in the stable door. On that little platform were several blood stains, and on the edge of the step leading down to the ground there were blood stains. On the doorknob and on the door leading into the barn there were blood stains. We took that doorknob off and sent it to the best fingerprint place at the Boston Police Department, and they informed us it was not a print but a smudge, so that brought us no results. Undoubtedly it was human blood, and undoubtedly blood from Mr. Dean, and the theory of the state is that he was assaulted there, near that door, either in the stable or outside on this little platform, and that undoubtedly he received his death when he was. Now, up at the corner of this summer house, which they call a bungalow, but which is not a bungalow, for it is a large two-story-and-a-half house, but which some people over there call the bungalow, this building was built by Mr. Dean first to live in, and then he concluded to rent it, and that building had been rented for a considerable time up to the early part of June of that year, and from June 5th, I think it was, until the time of his death, it had been vacant. Now, at the corner of that bungalow, and about 150 feet distant from the stable, there is built into the ground a rainwater cistern, and the inside of that was built after the plan of the inside of a jug. That is, uh, it was circular, eight or nine feet in depth, seven or eight feet in diameter at the bottom. And then the sides, as they came up, were narrowed in until at the top it was about four feet and a half and the top of the cistern was just even with the ground, with the exception that around the edge thereof had been laid bricks that projected just the thickness of the brick above the ground. And at one time the crevices between those bricks had been filled with Portland cement mortar, but owing to the erosion by the elements and the frosts, perhaps, those bricks had become loosened. All the ground around that cistern was grassed over, with the exception of where the wagon tracks led down to the barn and another track led up to this house. Now I think between the stable and this cistern was a grade, perhaps in going a distance of 150 feet, perhaps a rise of 20 feet, so that it was uphill from the barn to the cistern. 
Now, when the people began to collect in response to Mrs. Dean's request, they searched in every possible place around the barn and around the field, and finally someone conceived the idea of investigating the cistern, and they went to get a hard ice pick. You have probably seen those things they use in the ice house to shove cakes of ice around long handles seven or eight feet long with a straight face on one end to push with and a hook to pull with. They fished around in the cistern and discovered there was something there, and finally got a hold of it and found it was undoubtedly the body of Mr. Dean. There was nothing further done at that time until the coroner and the sheriff arrived and the body was taken out of the cistern and it very plainly impressed itself upon the minds of everybody there at that time that it was undoubtedly a case of deliberate, premeditated, well-planned, and carefully executed murder. An examination showed that on the side of Mr. Dean's head, he was bald-headed, a little more so perhaps than I am, and on the side of his head there were two cuts. They were not parallel, that is, if they had been continued far enough they would have come together. One was about an inch and three quarters in length, and the other was about an inch and a quarter. The investigations of the medical examiners disclosed that under one of these cuts there was a fracture of the bone. The report was that Mr. Dean died from strangulation, that is, he was not drowned. In other words, he didn't breathe after he went into the water. Wound around his neck twice was a hard hitch rope or halter, one of those kinds such as you gentlemen are all familiar with, a hard three-quarter inch rope. Now Mr. Picard is going to draw a little chart of the particular points, not according to scale, but so as to give you gentlemen a little idea of the situation up there at the Dean homestead. I was telling you about the rope which was around Mr. Dean's neck. It was a hard three-quarter inch hitch rope with a snap on one end, and I would say you could put this around a horse's neck, put the other end over the body, and hitch it to a post. That was wound around his neck twice, and the ends laid by like that, but it wasn't tied. Undoubtedly, your conclusion will be that at some time that rope was pulled with considerable pressure because there was an indentation around the neck where the rope was, and above it, it was discolored. There will be some evidence that this bone in the neck was fractured. There was a rope tied around the knees, a cord, probably the same kind of cord you will find on a window, one of those stiff, heavy, woven cotton cords. And on the end of that, there was a snap, the same as was on the end of the halter, that you could snap into the ring. His hands were tied behind his back, and around the right wrist was another piece of this white window cord looped like a slipknot. That is, the rope doubled, put around, and the end put through the rope and pulled tight. And that undoubtedly at some time had been pulled tightly because it showed the mark upon the wrist. The hands were tied behind the back, the knees were tied together with this window cord rope which I have described, and a horse blanket was folded and wrapped around his head. Inside of that blanket was a considerable amount of blood, and in all probability the reason why there were not more blood stains, because he must have bled a considerable amount, was because of this blanket, and quite likely it was put around for the purpose of preventing the flow of blood. Now then, over all that was pulled a gunny sack, a hard potato sack, such as you gentlemen who live on farms and some of you who do not have seen hundreds of. Inside of that sack was a stone which weighed, as I remember it, 27 pounds. That was inside of this gunny sack, and the sack was pulled down to the waistline, or as far as it would go, 
and these ropes that he was trussed up with were tied into the edges of that sack so that it wouldn't come off, and some of them, I believe, were tied into the belt loops on his trousers. At that time, he was dressed in a pair of short trousers. I forget whether they buttoned or laced at the knees, something the same as officers wear, as we have been informed by the officer in the room. Below the knees, he had on a pair of long black stockings, and for shoes, he had on a pair of low arctic overshoes. There was a heavy dew that night, and it was exceedingly warm, and when he left the house, so Mrs. Dean says, he took off the shoes he had worn downtown and put on these rubbers to keep his feet dry. He left his coat, left his watch, which was in his coat, and so far as we know, and so far as Mrs. Dean could tell us, he had no valuables at that time, either money or otherwise. Now, we have told you probably all that we know about the case up to that point. think of Oscar Young's opening statement? Well, what I think is that he did a very good job laying out the, uh, the, the particulars leading up to during the night of and leading up to the body being found. I, I think it's interesting that he, he feels the need to describe that they're going to be um, rational about it. And because it's a small town, even if they know each other, you know, they, they don't, they're not, they don't have any interest in whoever the murderer is. I just find it interesting that that has to be brought up. Towards the end of the, uh, where he wraps up on the, in the second half, he, he really pushes that. It's instilling confidence. It's instilling a sense of duty. And I really think, and you'll see this, you'll hear this when he wraps it up at the very end. I really believe that he understands this small town, this little hamlet in New Hampshire, will become divided. And there will be a lot of uh, dissension and a lot of people trying to push the theory either way. And I, I, I want to believe that he is trying to instill a sense of duty in in uh in in the people that he's speaking with and we'll we'll go into in in future episodes who he's speaking with i found it interesting that oscar young basically calls mr dean peculiar in the first two minutes of the statement what do you make of that i think part of it is the definition of peculiar at the time is probably the definition of unusual now he was unusual in in his time he was a gentleman farmer which by definition means he was a wealthy man who farmed for pleasure. Now, his wealth didn't particularly come from himself. It came from his wife. And his wife, which was not mentioned here, was his third cousin. So he married his third cousin, which was not that unusual at the time, married his third cousin. He was wealthy. She was wealthy. He lived off of her wealth uh, was a doctor that was non-practicing. He wore colored bow ties when he went into town during a time that was very conservative. And I think all of those circumstances would make one describe him as peculiar. He was uh, he, he milked his his cows at midnight and at noon. He stayed up late at night. People 
driving their team. And when you hear the word team in here, that means a team of horses and a carriage. People driving their team by his house would see uh, the light on quite late at night, um, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning, they would see the light on and that would be him reading. That was very unusual for a farmer at the time because farmers at the time would get up at four or five in the morning. They would milk at six and six at night. Um, his 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 behavior was peculiar, his dress was peculiar, and his uh, background was peculiar. That being said, that's probably uh, unusual. Right. So it's not like Oscar Young is screaming, this guy's a weirdo. Something he did maybe led to his death. He's just saying that some parts about him, about Mr. Dean, are unusual to today's standard and to the other people around us in this small community. He also mentions that he's from New York, so maybe there's a little bit of an outsider feeling uh, that Mr. Dean had to some of the rest of the community. Yeah, whether it's intentional or not, I think he said that he was from New York as a way to present to the the grand jury that this was a man who was not from this small community, but still ingratiated himself in this community by being so endearing in his peculiarity. One thing that, that I want to talk about is uh, how Oscar Young really details... People witnessing an occurrence will oftentimes have different ideas as to the hour of day and et cetera, et cetera. He talks about this. And when we talk about a case and we talk about witnesses, we say, oh, it's witness unreliability. Witnesses aren't reliable. It's funny how back then, 100 years ago, he needed to explain that witnesses oftentimes are not, you know, they, they, they have no theory as to the exact time and they don't know the exact hour. And what he's really saying right there is an early form of witness unreliability. And one part that is very odd, jumps out at me, is Mrs. Dean saying Billy is dead before they even found him. Oscar Young sets her up as potentially having dementia or something of that sort. And so you can see why some blame was potentially cast upon her or or people thought maybe she was the guilty party. Um, because of that, right? What, I mean, what, what are the other answers? She's psychic, uh, and and that's real, right? Right. She saw someone and and, and didn't say anything. Isn't isn't giving more more detail? Or maybe her brain isn't able to uh, talk about it. Let's go. Yeah, let's talk about Mrs. Dean for for a couple of minutes here. Um, I don't think uh, we were coming from a time of, of Facebook and Twitter and instant news and anything, you know, certain things that are put out there. There's always a spin on it. But I really like to believe that Oscar Young was not trying to put a spin on anything when he said that she was suffering from uh, senile dementia and and she was the last person to see her husband as far as we know of, she was the last person that her husband saw when he was alive. What what is what is really telling about Mrs. Dean is that when you look into the exact circumstances of where he was killed, which we will get into later, where he was killed and where his body was found and where the struggle was, and this is all circumstantial, where the struggle happened, where he was killed, where they how they carried his body. I don't believe that Mrs. Dean physically could have done what what they claim happened you know killing him at one spot and carrying him to the cistern um what is what is interesting to me is that the senile dementia is is mentioned and her mind was not clear and if it was not for that fact we could probably fix the definite hour which mr dean arrived at his home however 
moving moving forward in that conversation, she remembers that he said he would return at 12 o'clock. He went out at 11, and as she puts it, saying he would return at 12 o'clock. So she remembers the time there. She also remembers the time while she was waiting for him in the darkness at the, in, inside, the, inside their home, wondering why he didn't come back. And that's a, that's a terrifying image, by the way, of her not knowing what she's uh, – not knowing what's real or not, right? With a senile dementia, she doesn't know what's real. She knows that her husband left at some point, and and she's expecting to see him come back, see the lantern come back through the darkness. Uh, so she's sitting there waiting for him, and she waits until the sun comes up about 5 o'clock. Says at 5 o'clock she went out to look for him. So she remembers the 12 o'clock, and she remembers the 5 o'clock. Why wouldn't it be consistent with uh, her memory that she remembers that he came home and he ate dinner at, say, 9 o'clock or something? Um, I'm just putting that out there, 9 o'clock. But um, you can fix the hours where she says he went out and when he came, when she's expecting him to come back. But it's tough to fix the hours when he uh, r- arrived back from town after uh, going into the shops and, and coming back from the Rich's house. Uh, now, the most interesting part of your question was her comments before she knew her husband was dead, that that Billy is dead, Billy is dead in the deep water, which is terrifying to think of her saying that you can't get to... Uh, when 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 they asked where the deep water was, she pointed to an area that had no water. And when they asked how to get there, she said, "You can't get there unless you can walk on top of the trees." That really does show where her mind was at. And getting back to this, your question was, "How did she know he was dead?" It could be one thing where she had just built it up in her mind the entire night that if he's not coming back, well, he must be dead. It could be that simple, right? If he's not coming back, well, he's not out playing cards with the with 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 his buddies he's 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 probably dead or she saw something didn't realize what she saw was real and because of the senile dementia these thoughts that are coming out are more like stream of consciousness that could be almost like a half dream memory i can see what you're saying I, where did she point do we know that she pointed towards the trees um and there was and there's a, undoubtedly a swamp uh, over there, but maybe whoever did this actually came from there. Though I mean, I'm, I'm just just throwing it out there. Like, wh- what's the connection? Is there any actual connection to where she was pointing and this murder, or is it just made up completely? That is a that is a fantastic question because it states that she pointed in the direction of the valley. Now, if I'm thinking the valley, I'm thinking the the area of lawn that has that grade that he spoke of. So, if you're standing at the cistern, or if you're standing at the bungalow or the big house, if you're standing anywhere in that on the driveway and you're pointing towards the valley, you are pointing towards where that. Um, which we'll hear about later, the quote-unquote murder car was. And uh, the last thing I have right here in this first half is, damn, he, he was killed a lot of different ways. He, w- he was uh, strangled, he was drowned, and his neck was broken. And, and he was hit with a blunt object in his head. Just to correct you, uh, he wasn't drowned, he was thrown in the water. Okay, but... They found no no water in his lungs. Oh, okay, okay. But there was also a boulder in the sack that was that, that his head was wrapped in. So when they threw him in there, they intended for him to drown if he wasn't int- dead already. Or they intended for him to not float up. Okay, okay, interesting. Good, Th- thank Just you. Just maybe, maybe enough to get uh, a, a running start. 
which is interesting, right? Because why wouldn't they take his body? I don't know. Interesting question. We're, we might be getting ahead of ourselves there because we, we might be talking about who did it at that point. But it does seem like that there's almost no way that one woman could have done this, right? No, no way. I mean, we're talking about when you, when you uh, actually see the evidence, which we've seen and we will in future episodes go over the evidence. And actually, we're, link, we're showing some pictures on the YouTube video. So if you, you're curious, check out the YouTube version of this. Yep. Um, yes, when you listen to Oscar Young again describe how the body was found and all of the elements that go into it wasn't just one way that he was 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 murdered. There's you know, he was hit on the head with something that that was described as a hand cultivator. He had the rope wrapped he had the rope tied around his neck that that severed his spinal cord. There was the rock in the bag, the 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 uh the burlap sack, everything like the blood flow was, was staunched. A lot happened right there. Now, to go back a little bit, it seems that on the Monday night, that is the night preceding the murder, Mr. Dean had an interview with Mrs. Morrison. Uh, There had been numerous rumors current there in that neighborhood with respect to activities of spies, pro-Germans or German agents. There had been numerous reports about lights which were thought to be signal lights. They had been shot from the mountaintops to the mountains in that vicinity, so many people claimed, and there was a theory prevalent in that community that there was a bed or an organization of pro-German agents or German sympathizers or, or German agents, whatever you want to call them. As I started to say, Monday night, the night preceding the murder, Mr. Dean had some talk with Mrs. Morrison, who he knew occasionally went to Boston and who was going to Boston the following day and he told her to go to the Department of Justice at 47 Milk Street and tell them he wanted someone to come up there and investigate German activities, or words to that effect, and she asked him about it. Some of the details about it, and he replied it was a man's job, it wasn't a woman's job, and he wanted her to go in there and have them send out a man. The following morning, she went to Boston, hadn't heard of the murder, the train left early, and went to the headquarters of the International Division of the Department of Justice at 47 Milk Street and related the story as Mr. Dean had told her and delivered the message he had given to her to tell to the Department of Justice. Thereupon, someone said that possibly there was some German agent or pro-German in that vicinity whose activities had become known to Mr. Dean and fearing exposure that this murder was committed to close the mouth of the man who knew. Now then, to go back to last spring and for a considerable time prior to the 5th of June, there was a man by the name of Kohlfeldt who lived at this house we have designated the bungalow, the big house up on the hill, and perhaps this would be a good time for me to refer to Mr. Picard's plan. This is the road leading from East Jaffrey to Peterborough. It isn't so level as that, gentlemen. To go up there, up to the house where Mr. Dean lives, is quite a steep grade. So when you find the line up here near the end of the road, near the square marked The Big House, you are on the beautiful little mountains there. You gentlemen have been there and will agree with me it is beautiful. The mountains overlook the valley to the south and to the east the Temple Mountains. It might well be selected as a place for sending signal lights. The farmhouse, so-called, that is the place where the people originally lived who owned this farm that Mr. Dean bought, 
was a story-and-a-half shingled house with a little L built on which he had a billiard or pool table, and the lower part of the back part of the house was all finished off into a room in which Mrs. Dean had a couch hammock swing, and I understand from her she spent most of her time in that room. Around the edges of it there were bookshelves, and they were all filled with books, and the door that led up to the barn to the right here you may see out through the middle of the house like that, and she claimed she sat here on this couch and looked at the road toward the barn expecting to see Billy come back with his lantern, and it was too dark for her to go out and she stayed there until daylight. This little square up here marked barn is the stable. There's a large door here, large enough to drive in a load of hay, a small one-horse load, and the platform or porch built up. The ground at this end of the barn drops off very precipitately, and this is where you can get in with a team. To repeat a little bit, it seems that he came from East Jaffrey that night, up this road up to his house, stopped there, left his team, and went in and delivered the articles that he had got downtown, drove his horse up here, drove the carriage into the barn, put up his horse, came back, ate his supper, whatever he had, Mrs. Dean wasn't clear about that, and the only thing found in his stomach were some raisins, as I understand it. And then at 11 o'clock, as she said, he went up to the barn to milk, saying he was coming back at 12, but he was never seen afterwards. There's a door here that leads into the barn where the white doorknob was I told you about, and the bloodstains were on that doorknob, on the platform, and on the edge of these steps. The cistern is indicated with a green circle here, and the distance is about 150 feet between the cistern and the stable. The green line, I presume, indicates the possible route that the murderers took, for Mr. Dean was assaulted here at the door of the barn, and they carried him up and put him in the cistern. Along this path, we inquired of those who were there first, and they all said there was nothing to indicate that anything had been dragged over, that there was nothing around the barn which we can discover was used as a conveyance, nothing like a wheelbarrow or anything like that, and no indications of any wheels having gone over the grass. This square that Mr. Picard has labeled the big house is the bungalow, and it stands on the highest point on the mountains there, a beautiful spot, uh, the windows from the rear here and from the northeast side look out over that valley, clear way down into Massachusetts and to the Temple Mountains on the east. There have been many claims about seeing lights up around here. There is some claim on the part of the United States authorities that one of these windows in this house had been treated with some kind of preparation to prevent water coagulating on it. Uh, their theory being that it would have a tendency to disperse light rays if the rain stayed up in globules, but this preparation would keep it separated out. Now, as to whether there's anything to that or not, it is for you gentlemen to say. This sheet of glass, I have seen it. It presents the same appearance that you get when you drop a drop of oil on the top of water, that kind of purplish appearance. Now, whether that is a preparation, or whether that condition of the glass very naturally occurs, I will have to leave it to you gentlemen to say. I am going to say that I have seen many panes of glass like it in old houses. Possibly some of you gentlemen may know more about it than I do. I have been unable to find anybody who could tell me anything about it from a scientific standpoint. Now, as I said, sometime previous to June of last year, this house, which we'll call the Big House, was occupied by Mr. Colfelt, and he kept his automobile down here in the barn with Mr. Dean's carriage. 
There have been some rumors about Mr. Kohlfeldt's activity as a German sympathizer. At least he was not a man who worked. He had an income sufficient to support him without working. But you will remember along about that time there was a considerable sentiment in this part of the country, New England particularly, that a man ought to be something more than a consumer while we were engaged in this world war and everybody was doing all they could to make it a success. There ought not to be an able-bodied man sitting around using what other people produced but not contributing to it some way. You remember the work or fight order that was promulgated. Mr. Colfelt felt that that work or fight order might get to him. So on Saturday before this murder was committed, he went to Portsmouth and obtained a job with the Atlantic Shipbuilding Corporation. He had plenty of money, so he hired a room down to the Rockingham Hotel. Rather an extraordinary thing for a man to be working in the shipyards, living on the pay they paid them to have a room at the Rockingham Hotel. But he did it, had the money to pay for it, and I presume he had a right to. So far as we can discover from the hotel, and so far as we can discover from the shipyards, Mr. Colfelt was there Tuesday night. He drove a battleship gray Marmon car. There are many rumors in East Jaffrey about a car of that description in that vicinity that night, but investigation on the part of the authorities disclosed the fact that Mr. Colfelt's car was absolutely in a Nashua garage since the Monday before. That is, he drove to Portsmouth Sunday night, and the young man who took him over brought it back Monday, and it was absolutely Monday it was in the garage there, from that time until long after the murder was committed. I speak of these things, gentlemen, because we are going to put before you all we can bring in, everything we can, to see if you, a grand jury of intelligent men, can suggest anything to help us in this most deplorable situation. In a case where a man, a respectable citizen, a man well-liked, a friend of everybody, was violently murdered in his own dooryard right here in the countryside town of Jaffrey. Now, there have been other rumors current. Mr. Dean, as I told you, and Judge Rich of East Jaffrey had been friendly for many years, visiting each other's homes. They were men of similar tastes. They were both somewhat scholarly, that is, they liked good literature and they liked good things to eat, and they both enjoyed sitting down and having a cigar smoke together, and they liked to play billiards. And so it came about that they were frequently in each other's company, either at one house or the other. And Mrs. Dean and Mrs. Rich were friendly, and a Miss Hodgkins, a sister of Mrs. Rich, was very friendly with the Deans as well. And Miss Hodgkins was at home for a visit at the Riches that night when Mr. Dean called there. Now it seems that sometime during the night of August 13th, Mr. Rich sustained a very severe injury to his eye. That is, he got what we describe as a beautiful black eye. It was discolored way down onto the cheek and way up, including the eyelid, and up onto the side of the nose. Mr. Rich reports that he sustained that injury by reason of a kick from his horse. That is, the horse was standing in the stable. Mr. Rich went in to feed it, didn't turn on the lights, assuming the horse would hear him coming. He put his hand on the horse's flank, and the horse, not knowing he was there, and being a high-spirited animal, kicked, and whatever Mr. Rich had in his hand was driven against his face, and he had a black eye, a real black eye. I saw it, and it was really black then. Now, there have been various stories as to how Mr. Rich acquired that black eye. There have been various conflicting stories as to where Mr. Rich was and what he was doing that night. 
It is claimed on his part that Mr. Dean left there that night before the murder at somewhere around half past ten. We shall bring to you everyone along the route who claims that they saw Mr. Dean. Mr. Rich's claim is that when Mr. Dean came there, he, Rich, had just been hurt by the horse, was applying hot water baths to the eye, and Mr. Rich says that because of the pain he was suffering and because of his attention to the eye, he didn't talk with Mr. Dean very much that night and didn't know very much about what was going on. There will be witnesses here, gentlemen, who claim they saw Mr. Rich later in the evening, later than the time when he said it was, and that he didn't have a black eye. There will be witnesses here who will claim they saw him out on the street later in the night. Now, I want to say this, gentlemen, that in matters of this kind, a suspect has no friends. And I want to say also that personally, I am entirely satisfied with everything which your sheriff and your county solicitor has done. I believe their investigations have all been reported to me from a perfectly disinterested standpoint, having in mind just one purpose, that we might discover who perpetrated this awful deed. I want you gentlemen to understand that so far as the state is concerned, if it is possible to find out who did it, we don't care where it falls. Therefore, I want you gentlemen to approach this thing fearlessly, understanding that you are investigators the same as Mr. Picard and myself and the sheriff here, and we called you in here to help us. And if, when we are all through here, if, as intelligent businessmen of affairs, you reach a conclusion that we have got evidence enough upon which we might properly conduct a jury trial to determine the guilt of any person with a fair degree of possibility of convicting them, it is immaterial to us who that person may be, and we shall expect you will find an indictment. I would propose to say also that should you not indict anyone, that doesn't necessarily mean the conclusion of the affair by any means, because if we later are able to obtain further evidence as to who did this, why this investigation may begin all over again, and we can indict in the future just as well as we can at the present time. Now, gentlemen, what I have started out to make a brief statement has developed into quite a long statement, and I hope I haven't wearied you. I ought to say also, gentlemen, in your role as investigators, if there is anything occurs to you that we don't bring out here, you have as much right to ask questions as we have. Okay, so that is it from Oscar Young's opening statement. Lance, what did you think of the second half of that? I think he reinforces the the call to duty that we spoke about earlier on. He definitely nails that in. I think he, his, his major concern here is delivering the facts and making sure that the people of that town are not going to be swayed because it is a very small town and the public opinion is going to weigh heavily on their, uh, on their decision and on their progress in the case. And it almost seems like he knows that a lot of people have that on their minds already because he really beats it into their heads. 
He really does. And let's go back to the beginning. I think he realizes that because the government has been there already about these lights, uh, the the FBI, which was called the Bureau of Investigation at the time, was founded in 1908. So it was a Bureau of Investigation uh, at the time. They had been there. They had federal agents. Um, we will be going over, we will be looking at documents, thousands and thousands of pages from the Bureau of Investigation about this, which goes back to before William Dean was killed. This is our first mention of Kohlfeldt, the guy who was living on the property. Correct. And there's an assumption that Kohlfeldt was German. We'll find out from one of the members of the Dean Murder Research Group what his actual heritage was, but he was suspected heavily of being a German sympathizer. The speculation of, of Kohlfeldt being responsible or partially responsible for the murder of, of William Dean has been it, – it's, it's one of the top theories out there. The worker fight order that was put in place really drew a lot of energy from the patriotism at the time during World War One, and – when you really look into it, Mr. Kohlfeldt didn't need to work. And it's presented in such a way where he went to work because he wanted to make it seem like if you're not working, well, you should be either fighting or producing for your country. And it seemed like a very good excuse or a very good alibi using that patriotism against the people. So by saying... Hey, I'm going to work. I'm going I'm going to go to the Atlantic Shipbuilding Corporation, which he didn't need to go to, and work. He had the he had the motive, he had the excuse to work, even though he didn't have to, because either you fought or you provided for your country if you couldn't fight. Right. So is this an alibi that he's setting up? There's some very, very intriguing and and convincing arguments that this is an alibi, that he used this worker fight to provide himself an alibi. He made sure that his car was at a spot that was far away from his work, Portsmouth to Nashua, and Nashua to Jaffrey. Uh, we're, we're talking, I mean, by car today, we're, we're talking 45 minutes to an hour away. He made sure that all of these elements were in place. I'm saying hypothetically, if, if he was responsible. All of these elements were in place to obviously to undoubtedly put him as far away from the murder as possible it doesn't it remind you of the Maura murray case and how we've heard about jeff williams car 001 being in the shop it just reminds me of that does it not not only does it remind me of that it reminds me of one of my favorite episodes of columbo with uh john cassavetes I think it's called the Toot into Black, and he leaves his car at a uh, at, at a garage, and then sneaks into the garage and takes his car to go kill his mistress, and then brings a, the car back to the garage. Um, it seems like if you need to use a car to commit murder, you make sure that that car's in a garage and it's not able to be. Uh, it's not operable. I also thought it was uh, kind of surreal that Miss Morrison went to go to Boston to talk to the Department of Justice and she was already on her way and, and she didn't even know Mr. Dean was killed. She While she was boarding that train on her way to Boston going to talk to those people, Mr. Dean was already dead. Right. And we'll hear from people who are part of the Dean Murder Research Group 
and we'll hear that there are stories of when they were having that conversation at Mr. Dean's property, when Mr. Dean said to Miss Morrison he had information for her to go to Boston with and find the best man to come up to look into this, that there was activity in the woods while they were having this conversation. So there's a possibility that somebody heard him, somebody was watching him uh, for for a period of time, long before he talked to Miss Morrison, and and this was the catalyst to his murder. I wonder if that was where Mrs. Dean was pointing that night. If all accounts are accurate, and the valley is what I think the valley is, what they're referring to, then that is in the direction, yeah. A couple of notes about the language of the time that I, I really like is the description of a beautiful black eye. One, it is um, important to note that Mr. Rich had a black eye. Uh, the time frame which he sustained the black eye is in question still because Charles Rich gives the account of being kicked by a a horse, a glancing blow, knocking the tobacco pipe that he was holding against his face. It kicked against his face. He sustained the black eye. He puts that at a certain time. People in town claim that he did not have that black eye after his stated time. But what really drew me into the description of this, it's it's a fascinating fact of the whole case, this black eye. The black eye is almost the rag in the tailpipe, if we're comparing it to to uh, cases that we've we've worked on, but the description of a beautiful black eye and the the repetition of yes, it was black. Um, it stood out. And when you ever describe something that's that's terrible, it's fantastically terrible, right? It's a beautiful black eye. This wasn't just oh, what does he have there? This is a beautiful black eye. I just love the language of the time. It really makes it uh, illustrates it for me. Well, Lance, you know what we always say on the show. A suspect has no friends. And Attorney General Oscar Young makes sure to let everyone listening know that that's the case here in this case. And do you, you believe him, right? I believe him. And we said this before that uh, he's he's really hammering at home that uh, this is you have no friends. You're looking into it. And he's really putting the trust in the people that he's speaking to as we are putting the trust into our listeners with the, with the shows that we do and the cases that we look into. And he says it's in your role as investigators. If there's anything that occurs to you that we don't bring out here, you have as much right to ask questions as we have. And we want to say a hundred years later, it's still applicable. If you're listening to this and you know anything about the case, if you know anything about, the Dean family, if you're a member of the Dean family, a distant member of the Dean family, just because we're talking about it doesn't mean that you can't. Reach out to us, let us know who you are, and and let's see if we can make some progress here. And if you're an armchair sleuth like we are, check out deanmurder.org because there is a treasure trove of information on there. And frankly, we're going to need some help breaking this down. So it always helps to have fresh eyes on these documents, this information. You can have a ton of information by going to deanmurder.org. So check that out if you want to get involved. And please email us your thoughts, crawlspacepodcast at gmail.com. I just want to end with something that Oscar Young said. There was nothing further done at this time until the coroner and the sheriff arrived and the body was taken out of the cistern. 
And I want to end with this. And it very plainly impressed itself upon the minds of everybody there at that time that it was undoubtedly a case of deliberate, premeditated, well-planned, and carefully executed murder. And a hundred years later, you can look into this, and there might be something that people back then didn't see that you might see now. person goes missing, their loved ones often find themselves overcome with worry and grief. Bruce Maitland started the 501c3 nonprofit organization Private Investigations for the Missing because he knows this feeling all too well. When Bruce's daughter Brianna disappeared in March 2004, he was surrounded by licensed private investigators dedicated to finding her. Now his mission is to provide dedicated private investigators at no cost to other families of the missing, desperate for answers but without the financial means. Private Investigations for the Missing needs your help. To read the mission statement, make a donation, and keep up with our blog, visit us at investigationsforthemissing.org and follow us at PI for the Missing on Twitter and Facebook and Investigations for the Missing on Instagram. Because forever is too long to wait.